So I start with a question. My question this morning is, do you want the good news or the bad news? You want the good news? The good news is that I just saved 15% of my car insurance by switching to Geico. No, <laughs> no. the good news is that chapters 10, 11, and 12, we did 10 last week, 11 this week, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are really one continuous section. Chapter 10 was the introduction to this final vision and prophecy of Daniel. And chapter 12 is its conclusion. Chapter 11, where we are this morning, is really the body, the main bulk of this message, this vision, this prophecy that Daniel is given by an angel. So the good news is that since it's one section, I'm not locked into finishing the chapter because the bad news is that this is a really dry and historical passage. This is the first time your pastor might actually sin in front of you. If what Howard Hendricks said is true, Howard Hendricks said, it is sin for a pastor to bore people with the Word of God. I might just sin this morning by boring you with the Word of God. Daniel 11 is the longest and most detailed prophecy telling of future things in the entire Bible. This information is given to Daniel by an angel, and it's probably Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. And it happens in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So the third year of Cyrus is about 556 or 555 BC. At this point, Daniel, the hero of our story, Daniel's an old man. He's lived his entire adult life from his teenage years all the way till now when he's about 90 years old or just before 90 years old. He's lived that entire life in Babylon. And Cyrus's first year, he let the captive Jews go back from Babylon to their homeland, Israel, where they were taken from. Some of them went and some of them chose to stay in Babylon. Daniel was one who chose to stay in Babylon, not because his heart wasn't for Israel, but probably because his legs couldn't make the journey. He's 90 years old. It's hard to make that six or 700 mile journey as a 90 year old guy. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning as a 50 year old guy, let alone a 90 year old guy. So Daniel stays in Babylon, but he hears as they've had a couple of years to start the rebuilding process, he hears it's not going so well. There's been distractions. There's been a lack of effort. There's been obstacles. So Daniel is just brokenhearted over the condition of his people and his land. And so he's praying about this. And that's when the angel comes, fights in this heavenly battle with the demons to get there and give Daniel this really important information that Daniel then shares with me and you. And it's incredibly detailed. It's really roughly 400 years of history specifically, and then some things that relate to the future. Some of the things we'll read about, a very small part of it will coincide if you read the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther that still involve the Persian Empire. Some of these events will coincide with that. But largely, the events we're going to read about take place during what's called the intertestamental period. It's about a 400-year period between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and John the Baptist in the New Testament. And it's a period when there was no recognized voice for God. So really God, in a sense, for the Jews was silent for 400 years. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene and begins speaking for God, that's a huge deal. Now things were happening, history was happening, people were living, Jews existed, but there was no recognized prophet or spokesperson for God during that time. And a lot of the events we're going to read about and talk about were taking place 
during that time period. For Daniel, they were in the future. But for us, many of them we look back on in the past and we're following through detail by grueling historical detail that I will try not to make incredibly boring. We're going to follow through what the angel told Daniel and then how this actually came to pass in history. And this chapter is the reason that people say that the book of Daniel could not have been written in 500 years before Christ and 400 years before some of these things took place because it's just too accurate. It's just too detailed. There's no way. The person who wrote this had to have lived and seen that happening and then record it sort of under the guise of prophecy when it was really history that already had been lived because it's just too accurate. Now, I'm not going to vindicate the book of Daniel to you. You can do the research. Much information has vindicated the accuracy of the old date of Daniel, so I'm not going to go there with you. Just know that this was written by Daniel 500 years before Christ and speaks of events in amazing detail so that we can know that we know that we know that our God knows the end from the beginning, that our God is both sovereign. In other words, he is free to do whatever he wants, and he's omniscient. He knows everything. And that's why we can have this detailed description of history before it happens, because God knows everything before it happens. And it's not just that he knows it, it's that he's bringing these things into being. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's a living God who brings things, he calls things that are not as though they were. He can speak about something that hasn't happened as if it's already happened. It's a fact, it's a done deal. And so the angel gives this stuff to Daniel and to us as well. So Let's dive in. Verse 1 of chapter 11, we sort of combined with the end of our study in chapter 10, talking about the rising up of Darius the Mede, who was empowered by the angelic forces behind every world empire. There are demonic forces behind the people of God. There are angelic forces. This is the bigger battle. Our battle is not flesh and blood. Our battle, not on a human level. The bigger battle for or against God. That's the real battle of your life. God would say to you, are you for me or are you against me? And that's where the real battle takes place. So if God was for Darius because Darius was given power to rule for a certain time. Daniel is worried about two things, his people and Jerusalem. What's going to happen with them? This whole prophecy gives detail to tell Daniel the kingdom of God and the Messiah are not coming quickly. They're not coming in your day. There's going to be a long period of history, a lot of battling back and forth over Israel. And then ultimately the kingdom will come. So verse one, that's how Darius gets his place. He's the angel actually stood up to confirm and strengthen Darius to take over from the Babylonian empire. Verse two, are you ready? You engaged? Got your coffee? Verse two says, and now I will tell you the truth. Praise the Lord. Someone's going to tell me the truth. Behold, Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, this fourth king, this fourth ruler, by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So we move from Daniel's time, from Darius on through and see the fulfillment of the Persian Empire. There's four more kings. Just in case you like to take notes, you're going to have to write fast. The next one after Cyrus is Cambyses. After that is a guy named Pseudo-Smyrtus. How do you like to have that name, Pseudo-Smyrtus? Then Darius I, Pistapses, and then Darius I, 
gets beaten in battle at the Battle of Marathon. Everybody ever run a marathon? It comes from the Greek Battle of Marathon where the runner had to run and take the message. So that was this guy, Darius. The Athenians win a miraculous victory. And then he retreats. He decides he's going to rebuild his army and then make another run at the Greeks. But he dies rebuilding his army. So the next king, the fourth one, is named Xerxes I. This is the same, if you read the Bible, the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus, say that 10 times fast, King Ahasuerus is Xerxes I. And you have to know, like, I am no expert in history, and I don't know all this stuff by heart. I had all my books spread out last night and all these different Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, some of my commentaries, until about 2 a.m. when my brains were just fried. So if you're lost in this, join the club. This is tough stuff to follow. I'm no expert. I'm just giving you history as I've read it. I obviously wasn't around during these days. So we'll work our way through. Xerxes I then picks up where Darius left off. And Wikipedia says he spent several years planning an invasion. And he amassed a huge army and a huge navy. And he was, Xerxes I was very wealthy. You have to be wealthy to have a humongous army the long-term planning, the training, the equipment, the conscripting of soldiers, the logistics, the food, the armor, all of that stuff. So Xerxes is able to do that. And he goes back to Greece. The army is so big that Herodotus, a historian, says that they drank the Galakos River dry. There's a different name then. But imagine having an army come into Fluvanna and drinking the Rivanna dry. Can we agree that Xerxes had a humongous army? And if you've ever watched movies, there's a movie called 300 that has to do with this time period. Xerxes tells the Spartan king Leonidas to surrender. Xerxes has, I've heard anywhere from 300,000 to 2 million soldiers with him. I don't know, but Leonidas seems to have about 7,000. So it's quite a mismatch. And Xerxes says, okay, Leonidas, surrender your arms right now. Leonidas, the Spartan commander says, come and get him. I love that. So verse three says, then a mighty king or a hero king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. So we pass through Xerxes, the final one God mentions for the Persian empire to Alexander the Great. We've studied about him in past visions of Daniel. Alexander the Great comes on the scene in 323 BC. He conquers the Persians. Now Israel, now look, you got to keep your eye on the bouncing ball. So the center and directions, everything in prophecy revolves around Israel. So we talk about north and south and passing through, and all is relative, all direction is relative to the apple of God's eye, which is Israel. Now, Israel is now included with the Greek empire. And I like this, Alexander the Great, it says it's going to do according to his will. Now, I find that fascinating because God has already told Daniel before he exists what's going to happen. And yet the commentary is that Alexander the Great will do whatever he wants. And isn't that the crazy thing as we try to wrap our heads around on one side, God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign, that he knows the end from the beginning. He determines futures. He raises up kings and puts down kings and raises up nations and put down nations. Yet as individuals, we always are exercising our own free will. Yet it always comes out like God said, you're going to get to the end of this. And God's going to tell you exactly how it happened. And it's going to happen that way. But all the players involved are going to be doing things according to their own will. Now go home and stew on that for a while. 
God hasn't asked us to figure it out. He's just asked us to believe it. That I am no puppet. God isn't controlling my every move outside of my own free will. If God is going to be a God of love, love cannot be forced and be true love. Is that true? So for God to be love, it necessitates that he has to give people free will because forced love is not love at all. So God loves you and he's not going to make you love him. He's not going to make you walk with him. He's not going to make you have a relationship with him. He's going to offer it to you. And then you get to do according to your will. But really, God already knows. Think about this. Heaven's already populated. Oh, we're just living it out in real time. God already knows who's there in heaven because they're there already. We're there already, but we're here. How can we be there? Don't get me started. I got limited time today. Okay, so Alexander the Great is going to do according to his will, but yet God is controlling and in charge of the whole outcome. Verse four, speaking of Alexander the Great, and when or as soon as he is arisen, as soon as he's held his ground, at the top of his game, you could say, his kingdom shall be broken up. That's strange, isn't it? Top of his game, his kingdom gets broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, west, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So Alexander the Great, by the time he's in his 30s, has conquered the known world, runs out of area to conquer. He dies young and he dies at the top of his game. Experts, scholars disagree on what actually caused his death. Some say alcoholism. Some say he got pneumonia. There's no conclusive evidence. But the point is, he died in his 30s on top of his game, and he doesn't have any kids who can take over his throne. He's married three times, has two kids. Heracles and Alexander IV are both murdered before they reach adulthood. And Alexander, young Alexander, is actually in utero. He's in his mom's belly when his father, Alexander the Great, dies. So he's born after Alexander's death. So can't give his kingdom to his kids. So who he gives it to? He gives it to four of his generals, the strong. Just give my kingdom to the strong, four generals. God is only concerned with two of them, the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, here's where it starts to get dicey. Are you ready? Anytime we talk about the north, we're talking about the Seleucid dynasty, and we're talking about the region of Babylon and Syria to the north of where? Jerusalem to the north of Israel. And anytime we talk about the south, we're talking about the Ptolemaic dynasty, and we're talking about the region of what would be south of Israel, Egypt. So we got Syria against Egypt, and Israel is always sandwiched in the middle. So all through this chapter, we're going to be ping-ponging back and forth. One minute Israel is under the control of the north, then they're under the control of the south, and they're always fighting for like hundreds of years. The north and the south are battling with each other. Just be ready for a ping-pong match of history while we're at this here. So Seleucid in the north and Ptolemy in the south. Verse 5. Also, the king of the south, we said that was Egypt. That's the Ptolemies. The king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes. And that's what I just told you. The two that we're engaged with are the king of the south and the king of the north, Seleucid in the north. And he shall gain power, the king of the south, over him and have dominion over Israel. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So in Egypt, we have Ptolemy I 
and he obtains the territory of Israel as part of his reign. And in the north, we have Seleucus Nicator, just in case you want to take notes on that. Who has the ball? The south has the ball. They have Israel. Verse 6, and at the end of some years, in other words, some time elapses, they shall, north and south, join forces. That's kind of cool. After lots of battling, hey, they're going to strike up a deal. They're going to join forces for the daughter, listen carefully, of the king of the south. That's the Ptolemaic princess. Her name is Berenice. She's going to go to the king of the north, whose name is Antiochus II, to make an agreement. Remember, a long time has passed. So Ptolemy II, down in the south, gives his daughter, Berenice, to Antiochus II in the north. Antiochus is forced, catch this, he's forced to divorce his wife to enter into this treaty so he can marry the southern king's daughter. So he divorces his wife named Laodicea, and all this is intertestamental. None of this is in your Bible. It's all taking place during the intertestamental period. Now watch what happens. But she, who's she? Berenice shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her, literally obtained her in marriage. So this is speaking about the Ptolemies, Berenice's family, and also the one who married her. So Ptolemy, watch what happens. Ptolemy, who makes this deal, cuts this deal, gives his daughter... He dies within a few years of making this agreement, and then the deal is off. So Antiochus in the north gets rid of Berenice, takes back his wife, Laodicea. And this girl has good old-fashioned, what we call gumption. She murders Antiochus. He takes back his ex-wife, and his ex-wife murders him. Now, don't get any ideas. I know you feel that way sometimes. but So she murders him and Berenice, and she kills their infant son. And then the Bible tells us, verse 7, but from a branch of her root, so someone else of Berenice's parents, so a brother of Berenice, will arise in his place. In whose place? In Ptolemy's place. And he's going to come with an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. Now we've got a guy named Seleucus Callinicus and deal with them and prevail. So the guy in the south, the new guy in the south is going to go up and make war against the guy in the north. Does that happen? Yes, that happens. The Ptolemy in the south puts together a huge army and a military campaign in the north. St. Jerome, who writes a commentary on Daniel, says that he robbed and ravaged the kingdom of Seleucus, even crossing the Euphrates into Asia. Verse 8, And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, the gods of the Seleucid dynasty, with their princes or their molded images and their precious articles of silver and gold. So he robs them, pillages them, carries off all the booty, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So in Syria, Seleucus Callinicus, there's peace for a time because of this peace treaty, but now that's off. The war begins again, and the south kind of takes over and just rampages through the north. Verse 9, also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south. So that sounds like retaliation to me, but shall return to his own land. So like you, you get whipped up on, you get your God stolen from you. You're like, hey, I want those things back. So history tells us that what happened was Seleucus in the north mounts his own attack on Egypt, a retaliation, so to speak, 
but he gets defeated. He doesn't win. What happens? Just what the Bible says. He returns defeated to his own land. So the South still controls Israel. Verse 10 says, however, his, the guy in the North, his sons, so he's lost, but his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces or great resources. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, pass through where? Pass through Israel. And then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Notice a couple interesting things here. Uh, Number one, notice the change from plural to singular. You see there in verse 10, it says, his sons shall stir up the strife. But then we have a he at the end of that verse. So Seleucus III dies in battle. And that was one of the sons. Another son, his brother, Antiochus III, he's also called Antiochus the Great. You're so glad you came to church today, aren't you? I mean, any history buffs out there, somebody who's listening. Good. So there's some history interest. Other people just catch up on sleep. (laughs) So Seleucus' brother is the he that returns to his fortress and stirs up stripes. So he goes through. He's 18 years old when he becomes the king. He's known as Antiochus the Great, takes the throne at age 18, mounts a successful campaign against the Ptolemies in the south, and regains the territory for Syria all the way down to Gaza. So now the north has the ball. It's been fumbled. Now the north recovers. Israel is under the northern dynasty now, the Syrian dynasty. Verse 11, and the king of the south, now we're with Ptolemy the fourth, shall be moved with rage. I would be too. And go out and fight with him with the king of the north. That's Antiochus the Great who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude of Antiochus shall be given into the hand of his enemy. That's Ptolemy. Now what we have is if you like history, you can write 271 BC. Remember, Daniel's starting this vision in about 555 or 556 BC. So now we've fast forwarded to 271. We've just got a couple hundred years of history under your belts. Pretty good, huh? The Battle of Raphia. Encyclopedia Britannica says that Ptolemy IV has about 75,000 troops in the south. Antiochus has about 68,000 in the north. So they're fairly evenly matched. So verse 12 tells us, when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. So Antiochus in the north gets defeated at Raphia in the south or at the gateway to Egypt and he loses his entire army. But Ptolemy didn't prevail, just as he says here, he destroys the whole army of Antiochus, but he doesn't prevail. Why? Because he fails to kill Antiochus the Great. So in that sense, he doesn't fully prevail over Antiochus. So there's a peace settlement that follows, and Antiochus has to relinquish his holdings in Palestine. So again, the control is in the south of Israel, But he goes off, licks his wounds, and regroups. The verse 13, where the king of the north will return. He can't return if he'd been killed in battle. So the king of the north, who doesn't get killed in battle, he returns and musters a multitude greater than the former. Man, if I'm coming back, I'm going to hit you hard. And he shall certainly come to the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. So Antiochus blows it in the south. He gets frustrated. So instead of heading south, can't go there. He'll head east toward Babylon and that area. He gets money. He gets his army built back up. 
huge army. And in the south, this guy Ptolemy, he and his wife both die mysteriously. So now the rulership in the south that had defeated Antiochus in the north, they die. Antiochus is out mustering an army. There's new leadership in the south. And actually, their infant son, infant son, Ptolemy V, is now king in the south, in Egypt. And so this is opportunity for Antiochus to make his comeback. Are you with me? Tell me you are. I stayed up late studying this. You can hang with me. (laughs) Antiochus breaks the treaty. Remember, he had to relinquish some of his lands and Israel. So he breaks the treaty with Egypt and he goes back to attack them. Verse 14. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Now the king of the south is this infant king, Ptolemy V. So Antiochus doesn't just go by himself. It says many shall rise up. He grabs Philip of Macedon and they agree to go to battle together against Egypt. Hey, Mikasa Sukasa, we'll work together. And when we win, when we win, we'll split the territory that we gain. You can have your Greek part and I can have my Middle Eastern Israel part back. Also, the verse says, violent men, literally breakers of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Now, this is interesting because when the angel is speaking to Daniel and he says, your people, now we see the involvement of who? The Jews. The Jews, now they're divided. Some like the king of the north, some like the king of the south for various reasons. And Antiochus in the north was very friendly to the Jews. He lowered their taxes. He gave them religious freedom. And some people resented the Ptolemaic rule. But others liked the king of the south. So what happens is there's this division culturally in Israel and the high priest. Now at this time, remember, there's no king. There's no Jewish king. They got carted off to Babylon. The royal line has sort of dissolved for the time being. But the high priesthood is still operational. So there's a guy named Onias who's the high priest. So the high priest is the most powerful person in Jewish life right now. And he grabs a large number of Jews and he breaks away from Jerusalem, goes down to Egypt. Ptolemy is favorable to him, gives him a place, and he builds a replica temple of the temple in Jerusalem there in Egypt. And it says that they exalt themselves, they're violent men, they exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision. Seems that the vision that's being spoken of is Isaiah 19, verse 18, which says that one day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. So Onias, the high priest, reads that. He said, hey, now's the time. Let's get down to Egypt. We'll fulfill Isaiah 19. We'll build a temple there. The problem was they weren't really interested in worshiping God. According to the Jewish virtual library, the goal of the temple was not to serve the Jews that couldn't get back to Jerusalem. It wasn't religious purposes, but rather it was a military colony. So there were violent men under the direction of the high priest acting as sort of a general officer to bring manpower and troops to Egypt. Okay, verse 15, 10 more to go. Woo! So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. So General Scopus is the general of the south. He's the Egyptian army general who's facing off with Antiochus the Great. And he's generally fairly successful until he's not. Isn't that how life goes? We're successful until we're not. 
at the Battle of Panium, 198 BC, he gets trashed by Antiochus the Great. Interestingly, the Battle of Panium, if you Google that, which I did, it brought up pictures that I was very familiar with because on our trips to Israel, we go to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is in the Golan Heights in the north there of Israel. And that's interesting because there's this gushing sort of spring that creates the Banyas River. So they couldn't say P in their language to say Peneus or Peneum. So it became Benium or Banias. It's the same area, Caesarea Philippi, the Banyas River. That's where the battle took place. Scopus's army is annihilated by Antiochus and his war elephants. Did you know they used elephants for battle? I mean, can you imagine having a big roaring elephant come running at you? Man, but they annihilate Scopus's army and he retreats and he hides inside the walls, the fortress city. Literally, he'll take a fortified city, hides inside Sidon and Antiochus goes there and basically sieges him out. Scopus has to finally surrender because of starvation. It's just locked in these fortified walls. So again, are you amazed at the accuracy? You can see why someone would say there's no way it could be written ahead of time. But it was detail for detail. So even his choice troops, even Scopus's choice troops have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. There's that word again. There's that phrase again. So this is the whole point of Daniel. Daniel is learning that God rules in the affairs of men. Men do what they will to do, but God controls the ultimate outcome of everything. And that is so encouraging to me. You should be able to go home and lay your head down at night and have complete peace because God is not pacing on the throne going, oh my, who's going to win the election? Oh my, who's going to win the battle? I hope it comes out favorably. God knows how it's going to come out. And because you know God is good and that he works all things together for good and he knows the end from the beginning, you can go, God, I just trust whatever you say. But people will do according to and exercise their own will. He comes, shall do according to his own will. No one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land. Where's that? Israel with destruction in his power. So North has the ball, Antiochus again reigns over the Syro-Palestinian area. And he, verse 17, Antiochus the Great, shall also set his face to enter or attack with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, thus shall he do. Seems that he wants to rule over Egypt too. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. So he's got this plot to enter into sort of a marriage treaty. You know, people did that, rulers did that. You know, my son marries your daughter and we'll all be one big, happy, psychotic, nasty, backhanded, backstabbing family. So he gives his daughter, Cleopatra I, to the infant king, Ptolemy V. Well, now, at this time, by 193, when they get married, he's a budding teenager, 16 years old. He's just cleared puberty and he's getting married to Cleopatra, who is all of 10 years old. And his plan is to use this to actually gain a foothold in Egypt and dominate everything. But it doesn't work. Why? 
because this wonderful daughter, Cleopatra, favors her husband over her father. So Antiochus's plans to dominate are thwarted. He never materializes for him to overthrow Egypt. Yet, he still has the ball. The ball, Israel, is still with the north since that battle of Paneum. Verse 18, after this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. So he lost. He got whooped up on. His daughter didn't pan out like he thought. So he says, you know what? I can't go south. Now I'm going to head toward Asia Minor, grab places like Ephesus, some of these sort of autonomously run places, little cities, including places, islands like Rhodes and Samos. So he starts beating up on the little guys. But the little guys are allied with none other than the Roman Republic. Not so little. So he turns his face to the coastlands, starts gathering up and conquering and beating up on island states and some coastal states. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. So Rome steps in and then turns the tables back on Antiochus. With the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So the reproach comes back on Antiochus. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So Encyclopedia Britannica says that Antiochus had an insatiable expansionist drive. So he does that thing with these little islands. Rome steps in, and we have this, what's called the Seleucid War, 192 to 188. The Roman Republic is victorious, and they win a decisive victory at Thermopylae. Antiochus retreated, and his navy gets destroyed. He falls back. He loses some more. Ultimately, this is sort of important. Hang tight. He completely loses to Rome and the allies, and he comes to a place where he makes a treaty, the Treaty of Apamea, in which Antiochus had to pay a huge war debt, huge war debt to Rome, and give up all of his holdings in the Middle East. So that brings us to Antiochus then heading back to Syria, back home, and he's trying to get money to pay this war debt, and he's robbing temples all over the place, and while he's robbing a temple, he gets stabbed in the back and he dies. So the ball is still, however, with the north, with Antiochus or his successor. Verse 20, we're getting there. Hang tight, church. There shall arise or come on the scene in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. We know who the glorious kingdom is. That's Israel. But within a few days of trying to collect taxes, he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or battle. So Antiochus's son, Seleucus, Philopater, that means the Seleucus IV, who loves his father, great, great family guy. He marries his sister and he rules the area of Syria, Judea, Babylon, and part of Iran, but still he inherits the debt. Sometimes parents pass away and they pass away and they leave a ton of debt to their kids. I've seen that happen. And that's what happened in this guy's case. He dies, leaves all of his war debt to his son, Seleucus Philopater, and he's trying to pay this off. Meanwhile, his son is a hostage in Rome. Where do you get the money? You got all this debt to pay off. Where are you going to get the money? Hey, I hear there's a pretty wealthy temple down there in Israel. So he sends his general down. Wikipedia says this in 178 BC. Sends General Heliodoros to collect taxes in Jerusalem so he can pay Rome. But the Jews so resist him that he gives up trying to get the temple treasury. He goes back to Seleucus. And he says, angels, angels deterred me. They got in the way, they fought. So that's why I'm back with nothing. And then in fulfillment of the prophecy, 
Heliodorus, the general, assassinates Seleucus IV. So that's how he dies, not in anger or in battle. He's assassinated. Verse 21 says, And in his place shall arise a vile person. This is where we're heading to. This is none other than the madman Antiochus IV, also called Antiochus Epiphanes, or God Manifest. That's the name he takes to himself. Hi, let me introduce myself. I'm God Manifest. And this is the guy that causes so much trouble. I mean, if Daniel only knew what would become of his people under the reign, the horrific reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, he would have been horrified. So Antiochus Epiphanes is the vile person, but notice whom they will not give the honor of royalty. Although he's a brother of Seleucus, he's not in line for the throne. Seleucus was the next king, and then his son Demetrius would follow, and Epiphanes is left out of the whole thing. So he doesn't get the honor of royalty to be in the kingly line, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue, literally in Hebrew, flattery or smooth promises, smooth talk. So here's what happens. Antiochus, himself a prisoner in Rome, but he's been released, traded for Demetrius, the son of Seleucus. So Antiochus Epiphanes lives in Athens. When he hears his brother gets assassinated, he comes back and he says, oh, well, I'm not uh, here to actually rule. I'm coming peaceably. Uh, I'm going to rule for my nephew Demetrius and I don't really want to rule, but as soon as Demetrius is back out of captivity, then I'll release everything back to him. And he was lying through his teeth. Verse 22, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. That's a general statement about how Epiphanes will deal with Israel. So we're just kind of getting a preview. And also the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant is not Jesus, probably the high priest at the time, a guy named Onias. This is the final couple of tidbits. All right, hang with me. So the prince of the covenant would be the referral to this main ruling high priest. Remember, no royalty. The most powerful person is the high priest. And there's two factions. There's one faction, again, following through what we talked about before. There's the faction that loves the Greek culture, all the immorality, all of the paganism, this is the new culture. This is the new time. Man, we got to be good with this. This is where the world is going. But then there were some like the high priest who held on to the older sense of stricter Judaism. So Antiochus is connected with the death of that high priest, and you'll find out how later on. And after the league is made with him, with Antiochus, he shall act deceitfully. And that what always happens get in the door, get your foot in the door, make some smooth promises, people buy into it, and then you show your real colors. Politics at its best. He shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So Antiochus Epiphanes gets a small group of loyal followers, and then he reveals that he has no intention of letting anybody else rule. Verse 24, he shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. Wait a second, pastor. You told me that they were all busy trying to pay back the war debts. Well, they were, but that's been pretty much taken care of. So what Antiochus Epiphanes has that his fathers and forefathers didn't have was money. 
and he used his money for political influence over the wealthy nobility by buying them off and bribing them off. Now, this is fascinating. One of those relationships was with a guy named Jason. Jason was the brother of the high priest. So he's still related to Aaron, still goes back to the ancient Jewish priesthood, but he's the brother. And he says to Antiochus, now this is interesting, so hang tight, we're almost done. Verse 24 is where we're going to end. So he says, look, my brother, he's the high priest, but he's old school. He's stodgy. He's not current. We need to get ourselves up to date current because this guy, Joshua, which is his Hebrew name, or Jason, his Greek name, he wants to go by his Greek name because he's Greek, culturally Greek. And he says, look, Antiochus, I'll tell you what, you make me the high priest and I'll use my power to make you more powerful. And I use my money to make you more rich. And Antiochus goes, huh, let me think about that for a second. Okay. So out goes Onias, the high priest, and replacing him is his modern liberal brother, Jason. Now another guy, one more guy, and then we're done. One more guy, one more name. A guy named Menelaus watches all this happening and goes, hey, wait a second. Maybe Antiochus doesn't care who the high priest is. I'll make him a better offer. Now, Menelaus is not related to the Aaronic family whatsoever. He has no connection to the priesthood. He's just a guy who wants power. So he says to Antiochus, I'll one-up Jason. I'll make even more powerful. I'll make even more rich. Who cares that I'm not really a priest? Doesn't really matter anyway. And Antiochus says, okay. So now Jason is out and Menelaus is in. And the interesting thing about this is that this is when the official legitimate priesthood of Israel ceased to exist. Now we're about uh, in the 100 and sums BC. So within about 200 years, Jesus is going to be on the scene and there's going to be priests and high priests. None of the high priests we read about, none of the priesthood we read about in the New Testament is legitimate. It's all illegitimate because it follows along from this very time under Antiochus Epiphanes. So there's so much more information, things that happen. But the interesting thing to close with, and stay tuned, plenty more names where that came from. Next week, you're going to be like, I'm feeling a little sick this week. Uh, Look, I didn't write it. I'm just the delivery boy. But here's what I know. God wanted you to hear it. He wants you to know that every hair on your head He knows. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his understanding. If God can give us that much detail about world empires over hundreds of years of history and into the future, if it's been so accurate in the past, church, can you trust him with the future? I mean, if you lie to me, I'm not going to trust you in the future. But if the news you listen to, the voices you hear, the ones you pay attention to are the ones you trust. That's why you like certain news programs or certain blogs or certain places, because you trust that person sharing the information. You believe they're going to give you the truth. I believe, and I think you're here because you do as well, that everything I've read in the Bible has panned out. How many prophecies about Jesus that all came true? If God says it, you can take to the bank. I can't make that promise for social media. You know, the battle now is the battle in social media. You read something, you read a post, you don't know it's a real person writing that. There's all kinds of social media bots and plants and people disseminating disinformation. Nobody knows what to believe anymore. That's really happening. 
That's why I cling tightly. Man, I cling tightly to the word of God because I don't know where else to go. Who else has the words of eternal life? Where else are you going to go for accuracy about the past, accuracy about the present, and accuracy about the future? And for God, it has much more to do with your life than you might think. He knows every hair in your head. He's inviting you to be part of his story. And the question is, will you accept his invitation or not?